This morning we're only going to be reading two verses. We are going to find ourselves in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 16. We are making our way slowly to the end. We're making our way slowly to the end of this book, uh, but we're making necessary stops to just apply our minds to uh, portions of this epistle uh, with a prayer that these truths will be applied to our hearts and our lives. So this morning, we're simply going to read uh, verses 13 and 14 of 1 Corinthians 16. Paul says this in his uh, closing section of this, of this epistle. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. And may God bless us this reading of his precious word. Paul, as I've just said, has come to the end of his letter. He has uh, spent 15 chapters admonishing, exhorting, correcting, and even chastising. He now takes the time to encourage them before ending this epistle. In chapter 16, he reaches the salutation section of the letter. Uh, We're all used to writing letters. I know we don't do it any longer. We kind of do short versions of emails, and even emails are becoming cryptic these days. But all of us have been in some schoolroom where we've taught how to write a letter. There's sections and a format to a letter. Well, it's no different uh, in the writing of letters in uh, the first century. Uh, Generally speaking, the letter had three sections, the beginning, the body, and the conclusion. And the conclusion in these letters, you had four divisions, uh, practical matters, individual greetings, personal postscripts, and the prayer or doxology. Uh, The first section of the area called practical matters, which is at the end of the letter, usually contains the final words of warning or exhortation before salutations are written. So really when you get to the conclusion and you get to the first section of the conclusion, it's the, it's the last chance a writer has of saying something that he wants, to, uh, be, that wants you to take uh, cognizance of. It's important. It's his last chance to get in what he has been teaching, what he's been saying in the body. And so we find that verse 13 and 14 of this epistle form that last words of the practical matter section of the conclusion of this letter. I know that some people believe, some uh, writers believe that chapter 15 is the end of the letter and chapter 16 is a postscript. But if this follows standard uh, formats, chapter 16 is the conclusion uh, and verses 13 and 14 is that last section where the apostle or the writer can get something in before he starts giving salutations. In other words, this is the Apostle's final record of encouraging this church in this letter. It can also be seen as a summary of what what he has been saying to them in the preceding chapters. The Apostle Paul takes a chance to say as succinctly and as forcibly as possible everything he's already said in 15 chapters. It can also be seen as a summary of what he's been saying to them in the preceding chapters. They fail to be alert and allow the practices and philosophy of Hellenistic Corinth to creep into the church 
So he says, be watchful. They allowed themselves to be moved away from the apostles' teaching and did not per- persevere. That we see clearly said in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, where he says this of them in that second epistle, which really has a, a reflection back to what is taking place in Corinth. He says in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, but I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Paul says, stand firm in the faith. They remain stunted in their spiritual growth. Instead of being grown up and mature, they remain infants in Christ. They remain stunted in their spiritual growth. Instead of being grown up and mature, they remain infants in Christ. Paul deals with that in 1 Corinthians 3 verses 1 to 2. Paul says to them, instead of doing that, act like men. He's telling them to to man up. They stopped depending on the power of God for their strength. And instead, they rested their faith in the wisdom of men. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 4 to 5, Paul deals with that. He says to them, be strong. Don't depend on the wisdom of men. And so Paul fires these four staccato-like volley of commands to keep them focused on the main thing. How to be a Christ-honoring church. So let's look at these four commands they are commands, they're not optional, they are imperatives. Uh, Paul uh, was giving them clear instruction. Uh, he wasn't giving them the chance to uh, uh, decide what to do. Uh, they were required to do this. So in this first uh, section, in verse 13, let's look at these four commands and see what uh, they mean to the Corinthian church. And we will try and apply some of that to ourselves later on. Number one, be watchful. The word to be watchful means to be alert. It's not just a matter of uh, watching uh, uh, what's going on around you. It's it's about taking, uh, being being attentive, taking in what's happening. Uh, It will inform your decisions. It will inform how you respond. And so Paul says to the Corinthian church, be watchful. Paul writes to the church, that had become captivated by the life in the city around them. They had stopped being watchful. They had stopped being alert to the surrounding uh, environment. Instead of being in Corinth, but not of Corinth, they become just like Corinth. And so the distinction between the Corinthian church and the Corinthian city became blurred. Uh, Their alertness uh, had become dulled. And much of what made Corinth... Corinth found its way into the church. For example, uh, the affluent believers failed to accommodate the poorer believers in the church at the breaking of bread. There was a, a division between them. Um, that's much in the same way that the slaves and the working class in Corinth were marginalized by the affluent. Uh, so we see things that were in the city became replicated in the church. Um, what about the fact that Corinth was a highly immoral city? In fact, uh, the city gave its name to uh, debauchery. To be Corinthianized was to be involved in sexual immorality of the highest degree. Well, that came into the church. Uh, nothing more in this than something which even the Corinthians themselves couldn't uh, uh, deal with, where a, a, a man 
was having sexual relationships with his father's wife. Uh, and Paul spoke harshly to them over that. But the point is, is that the church, the city started to be reflected within the church. This wasn't overtly forced on the church. It simply slipped in because of the lack of vigilance. They stopped being watchful. They become focused on charismatic men rather than on Christ. Remember in chapter 1, we spoke about how they followed certain men who they saw as being super apostles or men who um, they desired to emulate. And so we find that they focused on men rather than Christ. They desired to be seen as wise and powerful and noble, much as in the reflection of what was happening in Corinth, instead of being humble in the service of the Lord. They allowed themselves to become distracted by worldly standards and stopped being alert to the dangers of being assimilated into the predominant culture. In chapter 1, verse 26 to 31, we see exactly that taking place. Paul commands to them is, be watchful, be alert. Don't become complacent in your environment. Don't fall into a spiritual stupor. The Corinthians were careless in their physical behavior. We saw that throughout chapters 1 to 15, how careless they were in so many ways. And some of them were literally in a drunken stupor. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 21 says this, For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. But more importantly, Paul admonishes them, admonishes them to avoid getting into a spiritual stupor. He says, be alert, be watchful. These four commands have been likened to military commands, to be alert and ready for engagement. Carrying with the thought of being in the army, uh, any Roman soldier found sleeping, that's in other words, failing to be watchful or on watch, any Roman soldier found sleeping on duty would have faced the death penalty, which makes, and on a side note, which makes the, uh, the comments in Matthew chapter 28, verse 12, absurd, where we read this, uh, of the Sanhedrin talking to the Roman cohort who had protected the tomb, and now found an empty one. They said, and when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. Well, we're not sure how that played out, but no Roman soldier who claimed to be asleep on the job uh, because he feared for his life. In fact, there is a comment in one of the history books that says this, if a Roman soldier is found guilty of falling asleep on duty, he is punished by something called fastuarium. Uh, this is carried out as follows. The tribune takes a cudgel or a club, and touches a soldier, the condemned man, with it, and whereupon all the soldiers fall upon him with clubs and stones and usually kill him. Those who are engaged in battle are required to not fall asleep, to remain alert, to be watchful. The Corinthian believers forgot that they were soldiers of the cross, and they fell asleep on duty. Paul's command is, wake up, wake up. Being alert and watchful is imperative if you are to fight off the enemy, our adversary, the devil. You don't walk into a lion's den and then fall asleep. Don't walk into the middle of the Serengeti and just fall on your back and 
hope for the best. You will become a lion's meal. Peter raises the same warning when he says in 1 Peter 5 verse 8, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Nothing is more dangerous for the believer than to fall asleep while on duty. Being watchful only is not enough. We are to watch and to stand firm. The next clause in this verse is stand firm in the faith. The word to stand firm uh, means uh, to persevere, to persist. And some have taken this to mean to stand in an attitude of faith. While that is something we do and it's clearly taught in the scriptures, this, in this context here, I believe Paul is saying by standing firm or standing fast in the faith, he refers more to where we are to stand as to how we are to stand. One presupposes the other. We cannot stand firm in the faith, as I'm going to explain to you, without standing faithfully. But standing firm in the faith is to stand firm in the word of God. This, I think, Paul captures well in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, where he says this, For we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by a spoken word or by our letter. They were to stand firm in that which they were taught. And Paul calls him that in Thessalonians, it's the same call he makes to the Corinthian church. The place to start is by standing in the gospel. In fact, Paul says that to the Corinthian church in chapter 15, verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. If we lose our foothold here, we lose it everywhere. This becomes clear in Corinth. Paul has to remind them in chapter 1 verse 18 that, for the word of the cross, that is the gospel, is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, currently it is the power of God. We know we have been saved. We heard this this morning very carefully and very clearly as we went to that seminar that we are saved and we are baptized in the, by the Spirit, and that's a once-off occurrence. But then we go on to our, go continually walking in our Christian life, and we live a life of sanctification. We are daily being saved. The same work of the cross that saved us once and for all is the same word of the cross that keeps us continually until we remove from this very presence of sin. So, standing in the word is essential for, our, for our, our life as a Christian. The Corinthian church forgot this foundational principle and ended up splitting the church into factions. It's in the very chapter that Paul writes this, one, uh, chapter 1 verse 18, that he writes about and expands on how they broke up into factions uh, of men that they followed because of, the, of, 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 the, of their abilities rather than being united under a single gospel uh, the gospel of the cross. Paul captures this in a positive way when he says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, 
with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. When we stand on the gospel, when we stand on the word of God, in the way that Paul is teaching here, there should be no divisions. This is what's, this is what's going to bring unity to the church. And if you think that perhaps this only applies in a corporate way, well, Paul says this again in Philippians, when he speaks about personal um, uh, conflict or division, uh, how that is negated by the word. He says in Philippians chapter 4, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and, and entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. So the standing that we need to stand on needs to, make, needs to be in place so that we can have unity that honors the Lord. It's not a forced unity. It's not a unity that we have to work at and plan around. It's a unity that is the natural outcome of standing firmly in the faith. The Corinthian church was a divided church. So the apostles' command is to stand firm in the faith. It was not only appropriate, but it was necessary. It was essential. We would do well to see these commands as relevant in our lives, to be watchful and to stand. He says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men. This word, act like men, is found only here. Apostle Paul does this from time to time. It's like he has this box of words which he pulls out and uses it, and no one else uses it. It's, it has been used um, in the Old Testament, but certainly this is the first and only time we see it being used here. Act like men. And many have taken this entire verse, verse 13, to be applicable to men only because of this particular clause. Of course, it says, well, act like men. So we don't want our women to act like men, right? Well, let's think about this. This letter is written to the church. And when Paul addresses one of the two sexes, he makes it clear if he's referring to men or to women. He never leaves us in doubt. This is clear in chapter 7, when he speaks about the relationships between men and women. Uh, he talks to wives, how they should deal with their husbands, husbands with their wives when it comes to divorce, uh, remarriage. And so he makes it very clear who he's speaking to at a particular point in time. He doesn't leave it for us to guess. The word used for man here could be applied in two ways. Number one, it can be used either to distinguish a man from a woman. That's, that is bringing distinction between the genders. That's how it can be used. Or it can be used to, to distinguish a man from a child. That is, it, that is bringing the distinction between childishness and maturity, bringing that to the focus. And the second one, the, the difference between immaturity and maturity is what this word means here. The, the English translation, be manly, is maybe not the best word, but it does capture uh, what the apostle wants him to be. This can be seen how Paul has used this distinction between immaturity and maturity more than once in this epistle. This is not the first time the apostles call him this. I remember we have always uh, been taught as we have listened to how to understand God's word. If you want to get to the apostles' intent, go back to see where he said something similar in the same epistle, the same, same body of writing, uh, and you will most likely come to the understanding what he's saying in a particular place. So we're not going to move outside of this, of this book. We can stay right to define whether he does speak about the difference between maturity and immaturity. Chapter 30, verse 11 says this, When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, 
I reckoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. He's speaking on the subject of love. And he's speaking on the perfect coming. But he uses at least this paradigm in one place at least where he shows that when you are childish, you do act in a certain way. But when you are an adult, you act in a different way. You stop doing childish things. Paul here refers to the principle that men behave different to children by reason of their maturity. In this case, Paul uses himself as an example. But he also uses this distinction when applying to, to the whole church. That is, to all believers. Chapter 3, Paul says this in verse 1, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people. He's speaking to, he says, brothers. Um, the vocative use of brothers there does not mean only men. It's a general term for all in the church. He's talking to both men and women. They're included in this vocative brothers. But I, brothers, sisters, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. He says the entire church is being addressed as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk when he was teaching the church. Was he teaching men only? No, he was teaching the entire church. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Even now, you are not yet ready. So he says, there's a big problem with Corinth. You're childish. You have a childish approach to spiritual things. So much so that I can't feed you spiritual meat. I have to feed you milk. Chapter 14, verse 20. Speaking again to the church by means of the evocative brothers. He says, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. So the Apostle Paul is not using something, chapter 16, verse 13, he hasn't already used in, the, in, in, his, in his book. The principle has been established. He's saying there's a difference between immaturity and maturity, and you as a church, chapters 1 to 15, are behaving as an immature, infantile church. And he's saying to them, grow up. Become mature. Act like men. The Corinthian believers had failed significantly in this area. Hence the apostles command to them, act like men. Conduct yourselves with maturity. The term be manly also means to be uh, courageous. Uh, uh, and some have actually used that and they've morphed into one and they say be strong as men. But the text doesn't say be strong as men. The text is saying two different things. We'll see that shortly. But being brave is not an exclusively male attribute. But it's noteworthy that the scriptures use men as a model of bravery and of courage. God sees men as the provider and protector, and therefore men need to be courageous in the face of danger. Remember that the time, uh, the next time you're called to dumb down your masculinity, don't. Men are called to be brave. God has made men robust. Uh, God has made men able to endure and with and, and and deal with things that women do not. It doesn't mean that women cannot be brave and courageous. It's just that the example that Paul uses is based on a paradigm we see in Scripture where men are called to be providers and protectors. Courageous and brave brothers in the local assembly will provide leading and encouragement to sisters to be equally brave. Paul says that the whole church needs to man up, become manly, not change your gender, but your attitude needs to become that which is, filled with, which is marked by bravery and courage. The Apostle Paul then fires the last shot in the staccato-like body. He says, be strong. Now the previous three verbs, be watchful, stand firm, and act like men, are actions taken by the believer 
things uh, and, and actions that bring about an outcome in his or her life. So the believer is fully active in carrying out those verbs of being watchful, of standing firm, of acting like men. The believer is active in being watchful and standing firm. The believer is exercising maturity so that it is reflexively benefits him in, uh, in, in becoming, like, becoming manly. So all those three verbs uh, is the believer being commanded to do something which they can do and then benefiting by that and the broader church also doing that. But in the case of being strong, the action is not carried out by, by the believer although the believer benefits directly from that action. The believer is passive in this action. The action is carried out by someone else. Now, Paul states this as an imperative, which means there is an obligation on the believer, and if this does not become true in the believer's life, the believer bears the brunt of that not taking place. But it's still not the believer who is carrying out the action. A better way of stating this verb is be strengthened. And the reason for this is that the believer does not strengthen himself. This is something the Lord has to do. It's given as a command to the believer, be strengthened. You have to be available. You have to be ready. You have to be uh, in a uh, walk before the Lord where he's able to strengthen you in what you're doing. Be strengthened. We get the sense of this when we read Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Let me read this to you. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We can be strong. We can be strengthened. But we need to let the Lord do that strengthening. So Paul says, uh, be watchful. At least be alert. Stand firm in the faith. Stand firm in the word of God. Uh, be manly, toughen up, man up, uh, be brave, and finally be strengthened. This was particularly relevant to the Corinthian church. They prided themselves in their personal strength. They had overinflated egos, and they thought that they were the bee's knees. In chapter 4, verse 6, and 5, verse 2, Paul admonishes them for being puffed up and arrogant. This arrogance that was embedded in their, was embedded in their false sense of strength led them to treat the apostle and others in the church in an atrocious way. And Paul sarcastically reminds them and reprimands them of this in chapter 4. The Corinthians lost sight of the fact that their strength was not their own. It was given them by the Lord. And by commanding them to be strengthened, Paul reminds them about where their dependency should be. The dependency resided in God and not in themselves. Psalm 27 verse 14 captures this beautifully where the, where, the, where the psalmist writes, Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Ephesians 3, as Paul writes this to the church, which is just across the sea from uh, Corinth. Uh, Corinth is on the west side of, of the sea. Uh, Ephesus is almost directly opposite on the, on the east coast. And Paul writes to this this church in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 14 saying this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened. Again, again in the passive voice, strengthened, that 
God does the same thing, and you and I passively uh, benefit from that, receive it. That you may be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. And so Paul has commanded them very clearly uh, that they need to do four things, almost in a military-style command. But that's not the final command. Paul's got one more command for them. Verse 14, that all that you do be done in love. This is a command just as the first four. This is not optional. It is required and essential to for the correct execution. There's not something that you can decide, well, I'm not going to love today. The first four commands have been given with a military precision, almost like a, a firing of a gun. Bam, 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 bam. Be watchful, be firm, be manly, be strong. If this was all the poor left for them, it would have been absolutely enough, absolutely good. It was in his rights to admonish them and command them with this degree of emphasis. These four commands were the positive, corrective procedures for 15 chapters of negative conditions. Remember, Paul has spent 15 chapters dealing with problems by telling them, stop living immoral lives, stop fighting amongst yourselves, stop ignoring the conscience of weaker believers, stop divorcing, stop abusing spiritual gifts. And so Paul has been extremely negative in correcting them. They needed to hear that from that perspective. Chapter 16, verse 13, takes all that negativity framed in the first 15 chapters and says all of that in a uniquely concise and positive way, but in a positive way. Verse 15, by itself, still has a feel of hardness to it. The apostle brings balance to this hardness of the verse 13 in his closing admonition, by adding a tone of tenderness, he adds a pastor's tone. He says to them that all that you do, verse 13, there's four things, that all that you do be done in love. The greatest lack in the Corinthian church was love. This is a church that had it all. Spiritual gifts, access to apostolic leadership, affluence. Remember, Paul was going to this church to get money to be taken back to Jerusalem because they could afford to support the saints in Jerusalem. Affluence, they had access to eloquent expositors. Apollos was there, a man who was eloquent in teaching God's word. This church had it all, but one thing was lacking. Hence chapter 13, they, had, they lacked love. And when placed side by side with verse 13 and verse 14, then we see that the two essential elements of a Christ-honoring church is this, sound doctrine and love. Sound doctrine without love becomes harsh and dictatorial. Love without sound doctrine becomes emotional and wishy-washy. We need both. We need the sound doctrine of being watchful, of, being, of standing firmly on the word, of being brave in the battle, and of allowing God to strengthen us. We need to do that. That doctrine needs to be in place. But when we enact that, it's got to be done in an attitude and in the context of love. 
I wonder what the, I wonder what the implication of these truths hold for us today. There are implications. Uh, this is given to the Corinthian church, clearly, but this is uh, a living word, and this word applies to us daily. What's the implications for us today? The very commands given by the Apostle Paul in 16, 13, and 14 were directed to the Corinthian church, but have also been left on record by inspiration of the Holy Spirit for our admonition. The world we live in is not different from the Corinthian church. We may think it's different, but it's, it's not different. We may have vastly different cultures and technologies. Our languages and customs are nothing alike. Practical day-to-day living could not be more different. Yeah, on that level we understand we are nothing like them. But where it really counts, we are very much alike. One writer has described the city of, and culture of Corinth like this. It's as though it is a compounded form of Newmarket, Chicago, and Paris, with perhaps a bit of Port Said thrown in. They were socio-politically as modern as we are. The same things that drove them drives our cultures today. Leon Morris has described this important city as intellectually alert, materially prosperous, and morally corrupt. Because just as I've been describing London, New York, or Cape Town. No different. We may have looked different from history pages, but we're looking to the hearts of the Corinthians and the hearts of Catonians and the hearts of, 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 of the British and uh, Americans and wherever you are in the world. Hearts are all the same. Without Christ, desperately wicked. The 21st century church has allowed modern living to dull their senses and has become complacent and stupefied, just as the Corinthian church. In the same way, the Corinthian church allowed the culture of that day to infiltrate their way of thinking and acting, so we have done the same today. Just as the Corinthian church thought of the Hellenistic culture as benign and friendly, we've embraced much of the world system as beneficial, even seeing things as essential. We can't live without modern trappings and modern um, inventions. We have gradually moved away from being distinctly different and thereby failed to be in the world, but not of the world. And slowly, We've become assimilated. We have lost our alertness. This is typically true of the church in the Western culture. Instead of being watchful, we become we have been caught napping. That is clear if you look around us. While we were lulled into a false sense of safety, a position not enjoyed by many in the persecuted church, while we were sleeping, things changed. Things we took for granted were taken away from us. And we found churches being closed down. We never thought about this. And pastors arrested and put in jail for simply being faithful to the Lord and his word. And this in countries that we thought friendly. Today the call is to be be watchful and be alert. We should get out of our slumber. We are asleep. The lack of spiritual alertness is so prevalent in Bible-believing churches today that pastors and elders battle to think straight under pressure. Church leadership is under huge pressure to think straight and on their feet and quickly because of the onslaught that's coming our way, of increasing COVID-19 scares, of threats of arrest for gathering publicly and biblically, for uh, under pressure to uh, deal with the relentless drive of mass vaccinations. The church has become fragmented in a way at a speed and to a depth that we would not have thought possible three years ago because we've been caught napping. 
We haven't been alert. We haven't seen the times around us, seen those signs sociopolitically, and made adjustments. We have been caught napping. We either haven't been watchful, or we were watchful of the wrong things. Like the Corinthian church, we are called to stand firm in the word, in the faith. We've been drawn into a situation where we are being required to make significant decisions almost on the fly. We've been pressured by seemingly helpful centers to decide based on information given to us. We do not research facts. We do not verify the sources. We tend to follow what others do. If we claim that we believe in a sovereign, holy God and his word, we must let him and his word have precedence over all our decision making. We need to be watchful and stand firm in the faith. The world has changed dramatically and substantially in a short space of time. The Westernized culture that we have grown accustomed to has suddenly morphed into something that most of us no longer recognize. The freedoms we once thought inviolable have changed, even as we observed. We were all left battling to rationalize the deconstruction of ethics and of values, and of words. Words no longer mean what we once thought they meant. <laughs> black doesn't mean black. Black is white, and white is black. Right and wrong, good and bad, male and female are no longer fixed opposite realities. They can now be whatever you want them to be. The world system is turned upside down, and... Uh, it's coming at us like a socio-political maelstrom. We've become familiar with things like BLM, gender fluidity, social justice demands, Antifa, mindless extreme leftism, and every other irrational ideology spawned by a driving desire to be woke. We caught up in that. And most of us only found out after we were told we are caught up in that. We have not been alert. We have not been awake, and we are slowly starting to not stand firmly in the faith. I believe that we, I believe that we believe that the world we find ourselves in is unique in the human experience. But this is not the case. Just like Corinth, we simply did not see the ungodly ooze pushing to the surface. While we practiced tolerance and accommodation, Romans chapter 1 played out before our eyes. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind, do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. That is the definition of the, of the worldwide society in the 21st century. Though they know God's righteous decrees, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. It is in the context of this world, a world hostile to all things godly and Christian and biblical, that we are commanded to man up, and be strong. The time is fast running out for us to be non-committed. If we fail to be courageous and we fail to depend on the Lord to strengthen us, then we will fail Christ, 
we will fail his church, we will fail each other, we will fail our families. The Corinthian church failed each other significantly because they failed to be watchful, alert, standing on the truth, standing on the faith, and to be men and women of God. There's no time for halting between opinions. There's no time to respond with, with immaturity. Depending on the law to strengthen us to make tough decisions and to follow through on difficult consequences is the call of the day. We are constantly under pressure to take a stand on COVID-19 disinformation, on climate change chaos, on absurd gender fluidity. The inevitable forced vaccine passport is driving down our throats. We are called to face all those things, and we are under, pre we are under pressure to take a stand if we're not watchful and standing firm and strong and trusting in God for strength, we will not stand. And we're called to do all of this in an attitude of love. Let all that, you, all that be done be done in love. Even the world we find ourselves in, we are called to love those in the world as we go out to them with the gospel. The very ones who are hostile to us and who want to persecute us are the ones we need to love with the gospel. We need to be grounded in our understanding of, of why we are here in this hostile, unloving, immoral, satanic, satanically driven environment. The Lord has deemed it fitting for you and me to be here in this world, in this century, in these conditions. Irrespective of what he intends, our individual experience is to be that we will let all things be done in love. This is a time for the gospel more than any other time. Paul entered hostile, unfriendly, ungodly societies to preach the gospel. We are going nowhere. The hostile, unfriendly, godly society is right here, on our doorsteps, and sometimes even in our homes. We are called to be alert, to stand firm, to man up, and to be strengthened, and to let all that we do <clears throat> be done in love. Let us pray. <clears throat> Father, we are thankful that you are concerned about our lives, concerned about us. We are thankful that you have not left us to our own devices. Neither have you left us to rely on our own strength. But Lord, you have indeed granted to us access to your word in a way which only your children can be. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who spoke through the apostle, not only to the Corinthian church, but who speaks to us today. We know that as he speaks through your word, that we are called to listen, to obey, and to be committed. We pray for strength in these days, that we may be able to stand, that we may be able to be alert, grant us a grace to be brave in the face of the onslaughts we're facing. And Father, above all else, help us to rely on your strength to keep us in these days as we wait for the soon Return to our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for these things, give you thanks and save his name and for his sake alone. Amen.